He is often referred to as the father of gay liberation. Yet he was a communist, had a career as an actor, and married a woman. He was born in Worthing, England, on the day the Titanic sunk, and grew up in Chile and California. He founded an influential gay society, but was ejected from it. He had an extraordinary life. His name is Harry Hay. Welcome to this episode of Stanford and the Twentieth Century. The series looks at history through the life and work of major global figures with a connection to the university. I'm Daniel Ray, and in this episode, we'll be exploring the life of Harry Hay. Hay studied at Stanford for two years without completing his degree, and went on to become one of the most important activists in American history. It's a great pleasure and a huge privilege to be joined today by two extraordinary expert witnesses who both knew Harry Hay intimately. Firstly, we have Joey Kane, an independent historian and the curator of Radically Gay: The Life of Harry Hay at San Francisco Public Library. Joey was also with Hay and Hay's partner John Burnside when Hay died in 2002. And alongside Joey, we have Dr. Will Roscoe, award-winning author who edited Radically Gay: Gay Liberation in the Words of Its Founder. That founder, of course, was Harry Hay. Will, Joey, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks, Daniel. In some pictures of Harry Hay, we see him wearing a fez. In others, a worker's cap. Sometimes he's bearded. Sometimes he's clean-shaven. Sometimes he sports a dangly earring. Sometimes he doesn't. He was clearly a very expressive person. But what sort of a person really was he? He was a character. He was a drama queen. He was flamboyant. He was brilliant. He was、um, domineering. He was sweet, loving, a loyal friend, and always five steps ahead of everybody else. Yeah. How about you, Joey?、Uh, yeah, he was all of those things.、Um, he was a, a great personal friend.、Mm-hmm. He could be both inspiring and a little bit exasperating. Although I tended <laughs> to find him more. Inspiring. He had an almost encyclopedic knowledge of everything from music to、uh, to history to the arts. He was, in a way, he had a few blind spots, but he had an encyclopedic knowledge of stuff.、Hmm. Mm-hmm. And was there a public Harry and a private Harry? You know, I would say not really. No, Harry was really Harry. Whether he now. Because he had had extensive training as an actor, extensive training、mm-hmm. on public speaking through the Communist Party, he did have his performance element when he was up in front of a crowd.、Mm-hmm. But I never found him to be, you know, one thing when he was just with you on one on one, and then one thing when he was in a, a public space.、Yeah. Um, there, there was a way that、um, uh, there was a gate to cross to become close with him. When he first met someone, or when he first met you, he was very serious,、uh, and there were things you needed to understand. He was famous for doing a finger on your chest,、uh, and that impressed and wowed people and horrified other people. So once you got to the place where you heard him, and he knew that you could hear him, and you were connecting with what he was talking about. Then the conversations could be more intimate, more back and forth,、uh, agree, disagree, and so forth. So there was that threshold to get through with him 
Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he also, I mean, it, it did depend upon what the subject was, mm-hmm. you know, certainly on the, the, in the area of, of gay theory and uh, theory in general, that was definitely true. I connected with him a lot just in terms of music and opera, opera. and stuff like that. And he had a great love of opera and he would gush and really uh, was very human in his discussion about those areas. Other things, especially the ones that he had made a great claim in, like gay theory, yeah. uh, he was a little more structured, I okay. would say. Yeah, and he could be a oracular, okay. prophetic. Uh, there was often some new thing that was suddenly right. terribly, terribly important that he had to announce <laughs> or to share uh, he was always moving from one thing to another. There were themes, but there were always like new issues that you needed to uh, yeah. be aware of. And to he had a sort of thing where um, a lot of the people who even wrote about him or made films about him really wanted to play up his faults. I mean, even the name of his biography is "The Trouble with Harry Hay," and. Um, I think it's because he challenged people in ways that they weren't necessarily ready to be challenged in, um, but also because he could be uh, he could be very irascible mm-hmm. uh, and very you know sure of what he was thinking and talking about. But I always found him he would listen to people and consider what they were saying. Now I also think he changed from you know his early years to his later years. That as many people have said who knew him, he kind of mellowed out. After the 60s. Well, let's go back to the yeah. the, the very yeah. earliest years, actually. Mm-hmm. What was family life like for Harry as a child? Um, so Harry grew up in a fairly privileged upper middle class family. His father worked for the... Uh, Anaconda um, Copper Mining Company. Um, but even before that, for oh. Rhodes. Cecil Rhodes. Wait, Cecil Rhodes in, in, Herbert in, in African. Uh, who was a co-worker okay. of his. Yeah, yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, being here on the Stanford campus. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so he grew up with, with kind of a privileged background. Uh, again, he was born in Worthing, England, because his father was actually in Africa, uh, being a mining engineer for Rhodes and his mother went to England to have Harry. Uh, so he was born in Worthing, lived there about three or four years in England. And then the family moved to uh, Chile where he was then hired by the um, Guggenheims. This is the um, father. This is-, this is Harry's father. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then they end up in LA. And so they're pretty privileged until the depression hits. Sure. And his father loses a lot. They're never really poor. But his father wanted Harry to be independent and on his own and kind of like didn't provide money for Harry. He was very domineering. He developed Harry's rebellious attitude very early on mm-hmm. uh, in, in reaction to his father. And it was also, though, a very California background. His, his grandmother had come west uh, in a wagon train, something like that, and settled in Virginia City. And Harry, um, at the age of 14, was sent to work on his uncle's hay farm in Nevada. So it was a part of the strict background that he was raised with that, uh, as his father told him, you are 14, so therefore you're a man, and now you must learn how to work like Mm -hmm. a man. Mm -hmm. So this put him in a context where he was with working people, people of color, and uh, and so, Wobblies. And he was exposed to the IWW, IWW and the Wobblies yeah, right, at a very yeah. early age. So so he, he had a background that gave him entree and exposure to a lot of different levels of society. Yeah. And his parents gave him a Catholic upbringing. 
Did that have any lasting effect on Harry? Um, well, I mean, unless one can argue those who are raised Catholic tend to have more of a, a social consciousness than those who are raised <laughs> Protestant. Well, he, uh, he did appreciate a good ceremony. Yes. And yeah, ritual. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but he was um, caught with a boy under the bleachers in the choir at a certain point, and the priest took him by the ear, let him out the door, and said, you're out. Uh, so he broke er- fairly early with that. Yeah. Yeah. So he realized at an early age that he was attracted to men. Very early age, and at a very, I mean, he was very precocious. He was mm-hmm. reading tremendous amounts from a very early age. Went through the local public library in LA where he grew up, reading every book in the library. And you mentioned Will about the summers in, in Nevada, and I think he, he mixed with communist ranchers and Native Americans. How did these experiences shape young Harry? Um, he was always a fierce champion for working people. He just had a, a natural identification with the folks at the bottom. Joey mentioned that some of the men he worked with were members of the uh, agricultural grouping within the IWW, and they talked the themes of one big union, solidarity, comradeship, the, the general strike. Uh, and he also worked alongside Native American mm. people, and they took a liking to him, and he had an early experience of being taken to a ceremony where Wavoka, the founder of the Ghost Dance, was. Uh, and as a boy, he was in a type of Boy Scout group, not the Boy Scouts, but the Western Rangers, with uh, a leader who had deep friendships on the Hopi Reservation and had opportunities to see the elders coming to the ocean to do ceremonies and later in his life, was quite active in a group called the Committee for Traditional Indian Land and Life. So Native American people were a connection throughout most of his life. Mm. And we mentioned the crash briefly. How did that impact Harry? Um, You know, honestly, it impacted him in terms of how it impacted everybody else. The family had less money, but even by the late 20s, Harry is not exactly political. He's really more interested in the arts. And certainly through the early 30s, early to mid 30s, he's really involved with the avant-garde radical art scene down in L.A., Mm -hmm. which is also a a politicized thing. I mean, there's, you know, they're, they're, they're not just artists, they're artists. They're doing art for the worker to bring, you know, ideas to the workers and, uh, you know, he actually was friends with John Cage when John Cage was very young. Uh, one of Cage's first publicly performed pieces was something he wrote for Harry to perform in. So he's involved with that wonderful scene that's going on in Los Angeles in the 30s. And then through those connections, he meets people like Will, the actor Will Gear, who at that point was already radicalized and a member of the Communist Party. Yeah. They were boyfriends for a while. And together traveled to San Francisco in 1934 to join, watch, participate in the general strike that was happening, not only in San Francisco, but in other ports up and down the West Coast. And then famously, he was there on the day when the um, National Guard uh, had come in and fired upon the strikers, uh, killed two of them. I work on the block where that happened. So Harry was there when the bullets were fired and then was deeply moved by the funeral that followed, which was huge and somber, 
And I think that made a deep impression on him. It made a, a huge impression for him to see that level of solidarity and solemnness and class solidarity. Yeah. Uh, yes. And, and it did have a, that had a lasting impression on him. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The particular story he would tell is that when the funeral procession came up to Market Street, where the businessmen came and stood on the street, if they didn't take their hats off, the workers went up to them and knocked yeah. them off. So at that point, there was no turning back. His entry into the Communist Party was gradual. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, he was hanging out with people who were involved in it. Uh, the first time he went to take classes, he said that he couldn't wrap his head around it. Right. Uh, so it was later that that happened, and he had, as many people did have, this epiphany as Marxist theory suddenly explained the world mm-hmm. to him yeah. and the way forward from that. So he joins mm-hmm. the party in 1938. Yeah, I just want to come back mm-hmm. just a moment uh, to time at Stanford, given that we're ah, rec- yes, recording we this at that. Stanford. No, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. Um, he's only there for two years. Illness curtails his stay. But he comes out at Stanford in 1931. What was the reception from his peers to, to his announcement? So, I mean, uh, there's a, a bit of a, a, a development when when he gets up here, um, he discovers what's going on in San Francisco and spends many weekends up in the gay clubs and the uh, gay speakeasies that are happening up in San mm. Francisco. And so he's really um, he's having an affairs. He's starting to see this what is sort of a form of a gay community going on. And Harry wanted self-knowledge. And to be honest about who he was. So he eventually started to tell his friends here at Stanford that he was gay. He felt that he needed to do that. He told his eating club that was here. He told his teacher. The glee club. The glee club. He told the fraternity. Literally. I mean, it was it was an early form of what we call coming out. Now, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, where yeah. you tell everybody around you, this is who I am. Yeah. Um, and actually... The reaction, I think he expected people to be a little more hostile than they were. Some people did stop seeing him quite as much as they did, but it was not as, uh, as it was mixed. It was mixed and not as universally negative as I think he yeah. was worried it might have been. You know, he came to Stanford because he really wanted to go into the arts, but his father said no and so he came here i believe it was to study his father wanted him to study engineering and harry absolutely <laughs> that. so they settled on international affairs uh, international affairs to, with the idea of a law career yeah uh is where that was going and that of course didn't go anywhere and even while he was here at stanford he was still writing poetry he had a poem published in the stanford yearbook of art i think it was called that they found a copy of He's writing short stories. He's and he part- starts acting. And he starts acting. He discovers acting here at Stanford. Which is why, presumably, after leaving Stanford, he then has a period in Hollywood. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. he would want to say that when we talk about coming out, we can't use our current frame of right. references. People were not using the word homosexual at that point in time. We know that it was invented, but it hadn't become... a common speech. It was not even in American dictionaries until the 30s or the 40s. So the language was used like temperamental, that way, Mm. sophisticated. And it was language like that he would have used to say, not so much, I have an identity, but I have a way of being. 
And that was what he wanted to start being honest about. Later in the 30s, he sees a psychiatrist who advises him that what he really needs to do is try dating girls. He, he marries Anita Platke. So like, all that was of a piece because now he was getting serious about the party. Yeah. And in effect, it was going to become a career. And the party was no more accepting of homosexuality than any other part of society. And so it was a combination of that time. He did the psychiatrist. It was just one visit. And to make his way in the party, he felt he needed to make a break and to marry somebody who could share that same kind of work with him. Because she was someone who was also part of these radical yes. groups. Yeah, she was part of the Communist Party. I wanted to jump back to Stanford yeah. for just one other point. While he was here, Harry had several affairs. One of his affairs was with the person who became a very famous poet and uh, filmmaker, James Broughton. James went on to become one of the sort of early major avant-garde filmmakers in America. But he and Harry had an affair while they were here. And apparently James, who was from Modesto, had had a previous affair and the family frowned upon it. And a family friend came and talked to Harry and said, oh, you know, if this continues, the family will cut off the money. They'll disinherit him. And Harry very consciously decided to break off with James um, and did so by telling these wild stories and taking James to San, San Francisco for a wild night in the bars. And James was very romantic and was very turned off by that. But Harry consciously planned how to break up with James so that James would leave him. And uh, I think that's very significant in terms of Harry's honesty, his integrity, and his concern for other people. It wasn't just about him. And he was intense. And he what was intense. His, what yes, his, yes. One yes. of his lovers gave him the nickname Python Coils. Python Coils, and that could yeah. be like that. And, and, when, yeah. If he decided yeah. that you would be his next boyfriend, it was yeah. a full court press. Yeah. So, <laughs> so he marries Anita Platsky, who's yeah. Polish-Jewish woman, uh, the fairly large family, middle class at one point, but very poor during the Depression. Boyish or even mannish looking. Harry mm -hmm. said if she had been a boy, they'd still be together. And he told her uh, she knew that he had affairs with men, but she assumed he would just turn their back on it and that right. they could have a relationship that was not based he, on sex. He had actually been told by the psychiatrist, who actually was a Jungian psychiatrist, that it would be like closing one book and opening another. Uh, and then that's the way he would get over his homosexuality. Didn't work. Didn't work. They adopt two girls. They live in Silver Lake and are part of a active, vibrant, progressive community mm -hmm. of other right. families. They uh, start a child care center. There are activities constantly. As far as anybody knew, they were the model communist couple. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he's pro-Henry pro Wallace in the 1948. Oh, well, this, now, this is where, okay, so we, we're, now we're moving closer to the formation yeah, of the Mattachine Society. But throughout the 30s and the 40s, their involvement with the Communist Party also meant involvement with this whole cultural milieu as well. Mm -hmm. Richard Nutreya and Gregory Ain, the architect, and other cultural things that are going on. Harry was involved with starting a People's Song organization in Los Angeles, uh, which had an organization which had started in New York by Pete Seeger. Hmm. Um, Harry was close friends with Earl Robinson, who was a great uh, left-wing composer 
And they were about and collecting it, and reviving folk music. And Yes, yeah. And using it as a way to inspire social movements, the, the to inspire the working class. Um, so they're involved in a very intense, it involves every part of their world. Mm. Uh, they adopt two kids. I think Will may have said that. There's the schooling, the cultural stuff. They live completely enveloped in this exciting world that was happening in Los Angeles. Through the- Meanwhile, Harry is living a schizophrenic life. He's doing one night stands or tricks in parks and and he's haunted. He's having nightmares. He's sleepwalking and he's even afraid he'll do something to his something, family. Yeah. It really mm-hmm. got serious. Yeah. So he really does reach a crisis point. Right. Mm-hmm. We're also coming uh-huh. to the key the key years of of Harry's activism and but he leaves the Communist Party in 1950. What led him to make that decision? So he is very involved with the Communist Party. He has one or two, not just tricks, but actual like romantic relationships, which is starting to make him realize the hetero thing that he's forcing himself in just isn't working. And he begins to formulate the idea that there needs to be a movement to organize and free what he eventually came to term the homophile minority mm. or the um, he coming out of the theoretical background that he had gotten from Marxism. He started to identify again. Home, we'll use the word homosexual for lack of a better term. Uh, that group of people as an identifiable cultural minority. No one had really done that on that level before. And in a way, that is where the modern gay movement comes from is us perceiving ourselves as a minority group not just as a conglomerate of of individuals yeah. and so it's mm-hmm. 1948 the kinsey report comes out all of a sudden it tells him it's just not one here two there three there but millions the other thing that happens is the federal government uh even before the rise of mccarthy is starting to hunt up and fire and purge gay civil service workers and he's hearing word of this and he's convinced that we will be the homosexual minority the next scapegoat right right and that this is gearing up yeah he felt that african-americans were too well organized to be the next scapegoat group that jews had just gone through this thing in germany that homosexuals would be the scapegoat group that 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 fascism would use in the united states so the Henry Wallace candidacy, uh, a third-party candidacy, the Communist Party actually got behind him. He was a progressive, and uh, Harry was very enthusiastic about his candidacy. And then the famous beer bust happens. It's a summer night, 1948. He's invited to a party uh, near USC. All the men who are there turn out to be gay. He's just come from signing a petition to put Wallace on the California ballot. And they drink beer and they start having a wild conversation about what if. What if we could do something about these laws and the police against us? And, well, Harry says, well, what if we worked within the Wallace campaign? Maybe we could get him to have a plank about something, educate, something modest like that. Well, how could we do that? Well, maybe we could be a group. But what would we call it? How about Bachelors for Wallace? Oh, yes. Where's more beer? Harry leaves that night in a daze of enthusiasm and excitement. And goes home and stays up all night writing what is now 
uh, we don't have an actual copy of it, but he would call the call. It was the original vision he had of what this organization would be. He then calls everybody from this beer bust. Well, it wasn't really a beer bust. It was actually a much more tepid party because they were all seminarians. (laughs) It was like from a seminary. Um, Probably a piss. Right. Um, And he calls them and, you know, one by one, they all say, oh, well, no, that was just the beer talking or, oh, no, that's that's just crazy. So out of that is born the idea of organizing the minority. This is 1948. For the next two years, Harry tries to find other people to join him in this. And what he gets is people either saying, well, get some famous people, some, you know, some influential people, professionals to join, and then we'll join. And when he goes to the professionals, they're saying, well, get the organization going and then we'll come along. So it's a complete catch-22. He is not able to find anyone to join this group until two years later. On July 8th, <laughs> at his daughter's dance class, yeah. he looks across the room and sees this extraordinarily beautiful young man in his 20s and is smitten. Asks mm-hmm. him out. Harry talks with him. Uh, and whips out Oh, brings out a rewritten version of, of call. this call. Yeah. So the man that he's met is Rudy Gerenreich who went on to become one of the major fashion designers of the 60s and 70s, invented the topless bathing suit, but had also uh, was a refugee, had fled Germany. And Rudy reads the call that Harry writes and rewrites in the 50s and says that this is the most dangerous thing he's ever read and the most marvelous thing. <laughs> and then they fall in love. And it was this was all of a piece for Harry. Yeah. Uh, and it was uh, his dream. It was a kind of relationship he eventually had on a long-term basis with John Burnside Mm -hmm. where they inspired each other. And so now they're going out together to find other people. They go to collect signatures for a petition against the Korean War to the gay beach in Santa Monica. Mm -hmm. And if they seemed receptive, they turned the conversation around and would show them the perspectives. Would you come to a meeting? Oh, hell no. And then finally... He's teaching classes, music history classes, and he realizes and Rudy encourages him that there are other te- other temperamental people there, including two men, uh, Chuck, Chuck Rowland and, and Bob, Bob Hall. Hall. Okay, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. He gives it to them. He gives it to them. He, Harry is home. He gets a phone call from, I think it was Bob, saying, can we meet you? He had no idea what it was about. They arranged to meet the next day. And uh, Bob and Chuck, with a third friend, come running down the street saying, this is the most amazing thing in the world. The third man was Dale Jennings, who becomes significant later. And the five of them sit outside of Harry's house. And essentially, it's the founding meeting of the Mattachine Society. They're still not using that term yet, but it is kind of the foundational moment for what has become the modern LGBT movement, And it's been described as a semi-secret gay association. Harry himself said it was more than just politics. It was a brotherhood. But what did the society do? Not only was there a political goal, there was a cultural goal. What you needed to do to organize people was make them aware of themselves, that they are a people. 
and that there is a history and to understand who they were. Because at that point, homosexuals didn't sit around talking about what is our life like, what is our life about, what is the meaning of it. So they started to have these discussion groups where topics like this were being discussed. And the discussion groups went on for a while. And, uh, you know, they had some political goals, but it was really about this idea of what we would call, or I mean, what we called in the 70s consciousness raising to create okay. a minority consciousness yeah. in the folks who are there. Uh, the groups grow. As they grow, they split. And then meanwhile, they begin to and create an infrastructure for an organization. Right. And Joey has insight into the nature of that infrastructure. Oh, well, yeah, but yeah. it was essentially what you needed to do to have a, a secret society in, in an era of political repression, much as the communists did and other groups in history, it was kind of cell-oriented. Only one person in the discussion group was connected to another. If you were caught, you wouldn't be able to reveal hardly anybody else. And it would work up levels. Uh, actually envisioned something like five levels. I didn't quite get to five yeah, no, levels. Yeah, no, no. It but, really only ever had the first order and the fifth order. And the fifth so, order. So, uh, I mean, we shouldn't go too much in sure. the structure of it because it's really about what they did did yes um so they did have these discussion groups the discussion groups were spreading and then in 1951 i believe it is one of the founders dale jennings is arrested falsely for making a pass or uh, a lewd and lascivious behavior and at the time what would happen is because it was so shameful. You could lose your job. Most people just went ahead, paid the fine. They paid shyster lawyers who ripped them off. But Dale from the jail needed $50 to get out and called Harry that night. And His Harry bailed him out. Hmm? His one phone call. His one phone call was to Harry. And after Harry bailed Dale out, they went out together and talked. And that day they decided they were going to fight, fight this in court, which yeah. no one had ever done before. So they get a lawyer, George Sibley, who actually defended the the left. He defended the, the the Chicanos who had been accused in one of the racist incidents in L.A.'s. He actually went on to defend Sirhan Sirhan at some point. Oh, wow. The man accused of RFK's. That's right. Yes. Yep. Thanks. Yep. Um, he takes on the case. And during the trial, he catches the policeman in out-and-out -out lies Eventually, the judge realizes that the police are lying, and the case is summarily dismissed, which was a huge yeah. victory at that period of time. Now, in the course of this, they make flyers, they pass them out in different ways, they raise money, and then along the way, the other thing they started to do was to ask questions of political candidates. Well, this, this came along, because what happened yeah. is, once they won this case— Mattachine exploded from maybe a few hundred people to thousands of people wanting because and is that nationwide or just no? Well, this is primarily in Los Angeles in the Los Angeles area because remember at this time this stuff's not being reported in the papers. Mm. This is all being done through the gay underground. I mean, word of mouth. But people hear about this and they join Mattachine in the thousands, which quite honestly overwhelms the original. Yeah, And uh, then okay. meanwhile, the questionnaires being sent to political candidates right. gets the attention of a local columnist, uh, Paul Coates. Paul, yeah. 
a strange new group, blah, blah, um, political activity. And this is kind of the beginning of the unraveling. It's part of the beginning of the unraveling because Coates, I believe, even says there's some implication that some of these people may be communists. And in fact, all of the four... Um, Harry, Rudy, Bob, and Chuck had been members of the Communist Party at one time or another. Dale never was, but as Harry described him, he certainly was a very good fellow traveler. Mm. So as this early homosexual rights organization and cultural organization is developed, there starts to become this question about, oh, are they communists? And people are joining the organization who don't share even progressive politics. And they're not aware of the larger structure. Right. And they're not aware of even how is this thing happening? Because the secrecy thing, which you needed, was so good, it worked. It worked. So there were questions about who who's behind all this, actually, and what kind of people are they? And they had drawn in so many folks, they were now getting... People with all kinds of different political opinions and loyalties. And ultimately what happens is the founders are driven out of Mattachine through an anti-communist scare where other members are threatening to turn names over to the FBI. And um, they actually and do. They, and they do. And so Harry and uh, the other founders literally are driven out. They voluntarily resigned because they realized at a certain point for this organization to continue, they would need to step aside, and they did step aside. And Mattachine continued well into, I think, even the 80s. I mean, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, and in the 60s and 70s, there was a Mattachine Society and organization. But in some ways, while its goals you know, what they said they were doing had shifted from what the original founders wanted. It still did what they had wanted, which was create a cultural minority. But... Yeah, please, Will. It was so watered down. And well, so, yeah, it was watered down, but it, it achieved part of their goals in spite of itself. Exactly. Historically. Yeah. Um, but uh, you take over while okay. I... Well, yeah, go ahead and sneeze. Yeah, yeah. I was going <laughs> to sort of go back to Harry and talk about what happens... With Harry, after he is uh, driven out of the Mattachine Society. Yes, please, because he meets John Burnside in. Eventually, meets John Burnside. First, he has an earlier lover who he was involved with, and Harry goes into a deep depression. But through that depression, he is doing research, groundbreaking research in what you know we would now call gay history, and he's got a lover who's a who's a hat designer, and they. He, they start a business together of doing hats, and, but that relationship sort of falls apart. And then in 1963, and Harry has been active throughout the 50s. He was involved in the Council on the Church and the Homosexual, which was an important organization out of San Francisco. But in 1963, he meets John Burnside at actually the uh, One Institute offices. They're out of Mattachine, while it kind of fell apart, it sprouted, it spread these seeds that led to all these other organizations coming into existence. So he meets John Burnside in, in 63, and the two of them fall in love, and they are life partners and lovers, to, literally till death. Harry's death. Yeah, And John mm-hmm. leaves his wife. Yes, John. John not only has a wife; he has a business making kaleidoscopes (laughs) very successfully, (laughs) and uh, so he leaves his wife. 
he and Harry, they set up their life together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Willie, I want to bring you to 1979 again and ask you, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, who, yeah. Who, who or what were the radical fairies and sure. how did you come to be involved with Well, and I was a student in Eugene and hunted him down to try to invite him to a conference, but he couldn't make it. So in 1979, I saw a flyer at a community center for the Spiritual Conference for Radical Fairies, as it was called. And I saw that Harry was an organizer. I went for that. That's how I met him. He was very prominent at that event. Uh, What was the event? Can you paint a picture? So uh, Harry had been living in New Mexico near San Juan Pueblo when the planning of it started. And they had found a ashram outside of Tucson, just as remote as it could be, but a kind of oasis that had shade and a swimming pool and made this the site of the conference. Over 100 people came, Mm -hmm. and it was done in a very open-ended way. We shall now plan what will happen. But it started with just a large circle with a talking stick everybody having an opportunity to speak their heart without interruption, to pass it. Workshops and uh, different kinds of groups were set up for the two days. And as a collective, we created uh, rituals, which were brand fresh new kind of ideas of ways to do something and very moving. It really sparked a fire. Harry, of course, had a theory uh, and he was writing these papers. They were more and more uh, ecstatic kind of writings um, through the 70s. These started to circulate for those who were inclined to try to penetrate them. People went back, formed discussion groups, uh, a practice of a, a annual event of uh, gatherings. It quickly became gathering instead of conference. Radical Fairy, the spelling with the uh, older English F-A-E spelling was adopted and then the second one was in 1980, mm-hmm. and that's when I met Joey. That's yep. That that was the first one I went to. Again, I want to back up a little bit. Um, Harry was also involved in the gay liberation movement that sprang up after Stonewall in in 1969. In that period, in uh, in Los Angeles, he was very engaged in that. Part of the reason these folks felt the need to call this spiritual gathering for radical fairies is they felt by 1979 the gay movement was moving into what would be termed a very assimilationist direction. They were trying to become more like the heteros as opposed to understanding who we were as as gay people. And that I always think of as the, the real kernel of where the radical fairies came from. These people came together that had this vision we want to still understand who we are. We still haven't really reached that. And they called this amazing gathering, which did have, they expected 40 people, 100 people showed up. The gatherings are still going on to this day. The The, the radical fairies have changed and become a little more, you know, whatever, pangender, whatever the thing is going on. But the initial impulse was for gay men to come together and understand who we are, where we've come from and what we're here for, what we're here to do. And there was this separatist strain to it, this notion of let us get somewhere where there essentially aren't eyes of heterosexuals. How would we act? And people shed outfits like what Joey and I are wearing right now. A shirt and a polo shirt. Yes, right. Walk down the street, nobody's going to bother us. And as Harry would say, bring your free-flowing non-hetero garb. And that was just really liberating because we realized that 
at least perhaps I can't speak for more contemporary generations, uh, we weren't raised in a gay family by gay parents. We were raised, uh, and all we knew to begin with was that we were different in funny ways, our gender roles, our sexuality, but that this was dangerous Mm -hmm. and that we had to find our way through this world in one way or another. So that opportunity to be spontaneous, Mm. uh, to listen to an inner voice, and then fundamentally to be authentic Mm -hmm. was very special. Um, And we did create, we literally created new forms. Um, You know, I do see the radical fairies as birthing what is now known as the gay spirituality movement. We had people exploring lots of different forms of spirituality, whether it was Buddhism or ceremonial Western magic or paganism, but with a uniquely gay point of view. Mm. You know, and a lot of writers will came out of the radical fairies. Mark Thompson came out of the radical fairies, a number of poets, a number of other writers. I mean, it Stuart, did generate Stuart Timmons. James Brown uh, James Brown was... was um, uh, Harry, actually Harry and James reconnected at a radical fairy gathering like 40 years after their relationship here at Stanford. So it's a very creative. creative it was place. very, it had a very creative period mm. of time. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, literally the gatherings were getting up to 300 people, 300 gay men coming together for this. And what was Harry's theory of gay consciousness? Could you explain that for us? Well, uh, it certainly evolved and it is complicated because, among other interesting things, it is grounded in Marxism. Uh, It always complicates things. (laughs) It does. And dialectics, which Harry came to feel was a binary and that there was something that Marx and Hegel couldn't see that was a transcendence of binary. More practically, he would speak about things like the gay window. He spoke about that quite a while. We look at the world through a different window. We're looking at the playground and we're seeing what the boys do. Or we're seeing what the girls do. And neither of them are us. But we get a perspective because we're on the outside of that. The gay window evolved into gay consciousness. And then he just started talking about what he called subject-subject consciousness. And that's actually a term that Martin Buber used, a philosopher, Mm -hmm. but that wasn't where Harry really got it from. He contrasted it to a subject-object consciousness, a notion which would be the standard patriarchal male view of nature, of women, of children, of different people, that they are objects, that they can be manipulated, controlled, exploited, manufactured, produced, uh, and in opposition to that or in transcendence to that, was an ideal of people relating to each other as subjects just like themselves. So in a certain way, yes, it sounds like Jesus. It sounds like the golden rule. It's treating others as you treat themselves. And he felt that a gay relationship of people of equal without significant status difference was where such a consciousness could flourish, but that the world was yearning for something beyond a subject subject and that to move in there was almost magical because Mm -hmm. at that point you were communicating with such empathy your thoughts kind of unite it has this romantic dimension Mm -hmm. because he would talk about how we would be 
two boys and take each other's hands and run to the top of the hill and watch the sun rise together. So he developed this in many different ways and iterations through the 70s and the 80s and most of the rest right. of his life. Yeah, yeah. What's yeah, your take, sure. Joey? How would you um, say? I that? mean, uh, yeah, that there was a unique consciousness that gay men, gay people had, mm-hmm. probably biologically based. You know, not necessarily socially constructed. Uh, Harry had an interest in the interplay between social construction and biology. Uh, he was very influenced by Conrad Lorenz and the stuff that Lorenz was looking at scientifically. So, and that ties in with what you said earlier about Harry being the first person to view homosexuals as a cultural minority. And I mean, that was the start of it, using the Marxist definition of what mm. a cultural minority is, which is, you know, having a common religion, having a commonly shared area. To have There was a certain number of things that he felt that gay people, temperamentals, shared two of those four. Yeah. And what was his relationship with the broader gay rights movement? He was both supportive and critical. He was not a big supporter of the human rights campaign. Let's put it that way. Uh, and there's sort of narrow, what he would have seen, narrow, limited bourgeois goals. Is that because they were assimilationist? I mean, he, that's, yeah. yes, yeah, 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 yeah. quite uh, honestly. Was, you know, they, they, they kind of cut out, you know, they would either cut out Nambler or they would cut out transgender people or whatever. Oh, and he hated that. And he hated, yeah, he hated that thing of like dividing people up, throwing people under the train in order to get uh, limited, limited, you know, goals. But he was embraced and recognized by the larger gay movement as this significant and important figure. And, you know, I think sometimes he gets forgotten in some way. You know, I mean, now everybody knows Harvey Milk, uh, anyone who knows gay history. They may know Harvey Milk. They may not know Harry Hay. No. And certainly in terms of the movement, Harry Hay was significantly, I believe, more important than Harvey Milk Mm. was uh, in terms of what he postulated and what he brought about. There are points Um, of connection. Yeah, no, there were. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. In their politics. uh, And and the Milk movie brings the story out was fighting uh, an aspect of the gay movement as much as he was fighting the larger straight community. And these were the liberals, the, the well-to-do, suit, the suit and tie people, the um, just be quiet and polite, polite, and we will have liberal friends who will do things for us. Mm-hmm. Harvey wanted a place at the table, so he was about power. Um, yeah, and that power was to be gotten through registering people to vote and voting and electing our own people, mm-hmm. and that's not that, that is essentially, in a way. Um, uh, uh, Harry's politics. He was a a progressive. He was a democratic socialist, while uh, being a collectivist. He did yeah. believe in collectivism. He did support the Democratic Party through the Rainbow mm-hmm. Coalition, Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Coalition, and Harry was a significant person involved in that down in los angeles he always was trying i mean what we now call intersectionality (laughs) which i think is an absurd academic term it was coalition building and harry was always building coalitions but he said they have to recognize us we come with our own power to this table with other powerful people from other minority groups and joey as i mentioned at the start you were there when harry passed in 2002 literally yeah yeah um what can you tell us about that time? Well, at that point, there was a group of us who had moved Harry and John here to San Francisco to take care of them because there just weren't enough people in L.A. to do it. So we found a place for them to live. Actually, the medical marijuana activist, Dave, uh, Dennis Perrone, rented us the flat. 
Harry was dying of lung cancer, and uh, we were taking turns staying overnight, and I was over there one night, and Harry was very close to death. And uh, John slept in a bed next to him, and I went to sleep on the floor. And at some point, I like had this dream or this sensation of this like wind or something passing over me, and I woke up. And I got up, and I went over and looked and realized that Harry had passed away. And I gently woke John up and said, John, I think Harry was gone. And John looked and said, oh, my, yes. Thank you so much. We're approaching the the end of our time here, but if you can, what would be the one thing that you'd like to pinpoint as to Harry's legacy, each, each of you? So maybe we could start with Will. What would be, have to pick one thing of Harry's legacy that endures the most? Yeah. I, I, I always freeze up on a question like that. <laughs> Here's my image of Harry. I'm with my partner, Brad. Uh, we were, four of us, spent much time together in the 80s. Harry was taking us on one of his journeys to visit things he thought were important to see. And so we were going out to the desert in, uh, outside of Los Angeles. And we're driving along. And Harry is telling us the story of the milk riots when he throws a brick at a cop uh, runs away into the tenements, is protected by a queen, meets a boy, and his his politics, his, his forms goes on and on. And he's driving along in this little truck, uh, and he, he doesn't brake. Brad and I are sitting there nervous because he's not driving on the road. <laughs> and so finally Harry takes a breath, and, and uh, Brad says, you know, Harry, I, I think you're driving on the shoulder of the road. A couple of years after that, we all went, um, uh, rented a houseboat and went to the California Delta. Harry took his turn driving the houseboat. Exactly the same. Full speed, first to one side, then the other side, almost to the trees, then here, then there. Those images are always Harry Hay. The lines on the road are a, a viewpoint from which to look over vast uh, vistas beyond. They were something to be crossed. They were suggestions, but <laughs> not not rules of the road. And for me, obviously, in terms of what we what we have now, it was the, the, this postulation and this pushing the idea of the cultural minority. But Harry also Harry was not an accredited academic. Harry came from a place where the revolution and social movement happened in the streets. His motto, in some way, was above all audacity. And Harry was always audacious. He he stuck with what he believed in. He did change, but he was always there. And he, during a period when the level of shame, it's also almost inconceivable for people to understand today just how shameful it was to be a homosexual. He stood up and said, I'm a homosexual. And to go against what was happening was an absolute inspiration. And I think that's why he's one of the great figures of the 20th century. Thanks for listening to this episode of Stanford and the 20th Century. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review and subscribe. Join me next time and I'll be hearing how the man who lost Russia to the Bolsheviks ended up becoming a professor and a cult figure at Stanford. Thanks for listening.